There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today... I'm standing by the Vaudeville Theatre on the Strand, WC2. One street east of the last seconds of Desmond O'Byrne's life. One street north of the fall of Peggy Richards. And three streets west of the deafening rage of Bernard Smith. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Theatre. Love it or hate it. For many, it's a chance to chin-stroke through some Shakespearean dirge. To hum to tenuously linked pop hits, cobbled together by an 80s boy band with six divorces to pay for. Or for an audience to show how truly badly behaved they can be. By coughing every six seconds. Not turning off their phones. As bafflingly, they didn't realise that paying a 14-year-old £10 wouldn't get them a top-notch babysitter. Or as I have witnessed myself, a patron cutting their toenails off the balcony. But for so many people, it's a much-needed night out and a chance to do something different. On the afternoon of Saturday the 16th of September 1972, 68-year-old Holocaust survivor Emmy Werner went to the Vaudeville Theatre to watch the farce move over Mrs. Markham with a care assistant from her nursing home and a receptionist from her hotel. It was an ordinary and unremarkable day. The next morning, this vulnerable lady who suffered with dementia was found dead in her bed having been subjected to a horrific attack in which he was beaten, suffocated and strangled. But why? The evidence you are about to hear has never been released and to protect the innocent, the names have been abbreviated. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide and this is Murder Mile. Episode 177, The Night Porter, Part 2.
nothing in the preceding days would hint at the fate which would befall Emmy Werner. As even when you pick apart the strangest moments in her last days, everything had a reason and a logic. On Thursday the 14th of September 1972, at about 10.30pm, Emmy entered the Queen's Hotel. Having stayed there three times since May, the staff liked this frail little dot of a lady. Often confused, struggling to walk unaided and slightly deaf, as the hotel was staffed by young people far from home, they looked after her as if she was their own and some had even become her friend. Dressed in a tatty brown cardigan, an old skirt and a mohair scarf, she didn't exude a woman of wealth. In her back, she carried some spare clothes, some tissues, some crackers and a bottle of perfume. And although a few items and a little cash had gone missing in the recent months, this was put down to her senility. On previous visits, Emmy had stayed in room 17, a first-floor room next to Osmond, the manager. But being occupied that weekend, they put her in room 11, between regular guest Mr. James in room 12 and the newlyweds Mr. and Mrs. Gibbs in room 10. The only excitement that night was from a possible false alarm, as at 10.40pm, Emmy and Paul, the 16-year-old day porter, stood on her balcony and watched the fire engines race to 42 Inverness Terrace. Still struggling with the cold, as he blew his nose, he kept his distance for fear of passing on his germs. The one problem with the room was that the balcony doors would not lock. Placed on a long list of repairs that the manager was yet to complete, Paul temporarily fixed the lock by wedging it with a 5p piece. That night, Emmy had a good sleep. She woke early, she ate her breakfast in the hotel's lounge, and she went to Paddington to visit her sister Anna as planned. At 10.30pm, she returned to the Queen's Hotel, chatted with Paul and Linda, and at 11pm, he escorted her to her room. Saturday the 17th of September 1972 was the day of Emmy's trip to the theatre. Escorted by Giovanna, a care assistant from Emmy's nursing home, and Linda, a receptionist from the hotel. The family were happy to pay for extra tickets if it meant that Emmy would be accompanied by someone they knew and trusted. At 4.20pm, Emmy and Linda left the hotel by taxi and met Giovanna at the Vaudeville Theatre on the Strand as paid for by Emmy, who had begun her four-day stay at the hotel 
with roughly 100 pounds in her purse. With the matinee show finishing at 7.30 p.m. and Giovanna having left, Emmy and Linda headed to the pub. Linda had a rum and coke. Emmy had a martini and soda. They ate sausage sandwiches and left at 8.20 p.m. as witnessed by the other customers. At 9 p.m., they arrived at the Queen's Hotel, as confirmed by the taxi driver. And for the next two hours, Emmy sat in the lounge, chatting with Linda the receptionist, Paul the day porter, and Patricia the chambermaid, over a light snack of cheese, bread, crisps, and a cup of tea. Emmy was on good form that night, but the staff said the two issues were plaguing her mind. That she had a sizable sum of money in her bank account that her daughter and son-in-law wouldn't let her have access to. And her dislike of Edgar Coldwell, the proprietor of the care home, who was always shouting and always angry. According to Paul, we talked until 11.05pm and that was the last time I saw her. With Paddy the night porter running late for his shift, Linda assisted Emmy to room 11. Linda would state, I unlocked the door, giving her the key. She remarked that the room felt hot, so I opened the balcony doors. The 5P piece placed by Paul to keep the doors locked was later found on the dresser where she had placed it. It was odd for Emmy to sleep with the balcony doors open. But that night, the room was unusually hot. As Linda was leaving, with Emmy undressing, Linda took the mohair scarf and hung it on a hook behind the door and placed her brown cardigan in the wardrobe. With her handbag and purse beside the bed, Emmy thanked Linda and wished her a good night. Emmy double-locked the door behind her, leaving the key in the lock, and dressed in a checkered nightshirt and a white nightgown, she went to sleep. It was a day as mundane as any other. And then she was murdered. The investigation was headed up by Detective Chief Inspector John Candlish. Being a premises with a high turnover of staff and guests, he had his work cut out trying to work out who was where and when. Kathy the chambermaid began a shift at 6.30am, with checkout at 11am and check-in at 2pm. The turnaround was tight but doable. That morning, with Mr. James in room 12 and Mr. and Mrs. Gibbs, the newlyweds in room 10, having already checked out, 
Kathy had cleaned their rooms, but was yet to do Emmy's. With the door locked and the key on the inside, Kathy didn't suspect any foul play. Only that this frail and vulnerable old lady had either overslept, missing her alarm owing to her deafness, or that she was out. Out of politeness, she knocked. Mrs. W. But got no reply. Using the phone in room 12, Kathy got Angela, the receptionist, to call room 11. But again, she got no reply. From the first floor balcony of room 12, Kathy could see that one of the balcony doors was slightly ajar, as it had been left the night before. So she climbed over the black wrought iron railings and entered room 11. Initially, Kathy saw no one. The bed looked untidy as all the blankets were filed up, and I didn't think anyone was lying in it. Believing the room had been vacated, Kathy unlocked the door from the inside to fetch her trolley of fresh linen. A locksmith would later verify that there was no evidence of a break-in and none of the locks had been forced. When questioned, Kathy recalled that the wardrobe was open, the door hook was unused, and Emmy's handbag was unzipped and left open. For Kathy, at that moment, all she had on her mind was getting room 11 cleaned while Mrs. W was out. She didn't see a body, and there were no signs of an assault or a break-in. Emmy had left her bags beside the bed, but as a confused old lady prone to misplacing items, this wasn't out of the ordinary. Kathy would state, I went to make the bed, and as I pulled back the bedspread, she saw Emmy. Not asleep, nor slowly rousing, but unmistakably dead her mouth agape, her eyes wide and etched in terror. Called at 1.10pm, an ambulance arrived in just six minutes. But finding no pulse, Emmy's body was left in situ. For DCI Candlish, it was clear that this was not a natural death, nor a suicide, but a murder. Emmy had been targeted by a perpetrator who had purposely gained entry to room 11 with one specific motive. Entry to room 11 would not have been easy from the street, as being a first floor room with no place to position a ladder, no handholds, and with the French doors shielded by a set of anti-burglar spikes. The most obvious entry or exit was the balcony, whether via Inverness Terrace or another room. No fingerprints were found, 
suggesting that the culprit had worn gloves. But fragments of bitumen, a semi-solid black paint made of asphalt, used to waterproof the balcony, had been walked into the room. With particles later found by the dressing table, the wardrobe, and on the bottom sheet of Emmy's bed. It was impossible to determine the shoe size owing to the high traffic in the room, as several people, including Kathy, Oswald, two ambulance drivers and a doctor, had been inside the room before the police had arrived. Robbery was a possibility, but unlikely, as Emmy was not wealthy. She didn't wear jewellery, her possessions weren't of any real value, and of the hundred pounds it was suggested she may have carried to cover her costs. Only fifteen pounds remained in her purse, although no one knew how much she had spent. Examining the room, the police saw a clear timeline of her final movements. A locked door, a half-drunk cup of tea, a few crumbs from her bedtime snack of cheese and crackers. She had set her alarm clock. She had undressed, placing her skirt and jacket on the chair and her coat in the wardrobe. And as there was no signs of struggle in the room, it was suggested that she'd been attacked in her bed as she slept. Upon inspection, her brown cardigan and mohair scarf were no longer where Linda had left them the night before. But why? Who would take this tatty set of old ladies' clothes? And for what purpose? Her murder lacked an obvious motive. She wasn't the kind of woman who had a bad bone in her body or a bad word to say about anyone. She didn't make enemies and she didn't have any debts. So who would want her debt? A friend? A family member? A stranger? Or someone from her past? Emmy was just a frail elderly lady, living a simple life with few friends, money or possessions. But it's clear that she was chosen by someone who had entered her room and no other. Ignoring the other 59 rooms of the Queen's Hotel and any other guest houses and flats along Inverness Terrace. To establish what had happened, the police needed to find witnesses, starting with the guests. The Queen's Hotel was a guest house consisting of four townhouses knocked through, with a reception and TV lounge on the ground floor, bedrooms for guests and the manager on the first, second and third floors, and in the basement was a kitchen, a storeroom and several bedrooms for the staff. The hotel was busy that weekend, and to identify all of the guests would prove problematic. As with many guest houses in the 1970s, the booking system was haphazard. 
If you wanted a room, you telephoned in advance, sent a letter, or walked up off the street. You signed the guest book with a name and an address, in a handwriting which was often illegible. You were not required to provide any ID. In fact, with lone men and unmarried couples, it was common to use false details to disguise their identity in case they were embroiled in a scandal. And many guests paid by cash. Of the rooms reserved for guests, police were able to question most of the customers. No one heard any screams or saw any strangers. And by all accounts, it was a very ordinary night in a hot hotel. Several guests had checked out that morning. And owing possibly to mistakes in the booking system, the police struggled to identify or even question them. Three of these guests were key witnesses to the success of the investigation. A man known only as Mr. James in room 12, and the newlyweds Mr. and Mrs. Gibbs in room 10. Three people whose rooms were nearest to where Emmy was murdered. This could be seen as suspicious, but as the Queen's Hotel was at best a slapdash guest house, run by a manager with other things on his mind, and mostly staffed by a bunch of kids who had only been in the job for a couple of weeks. Standards were low to non-existent. The turnover was high, with the former night porter having only been recently dismissed. And being young and immature, many of the staff took liberties with their new freedom. By turning up late, hungover, and even letting their friends stay over for free. Several non-paying guests stayed over that night. Two German brothers called Ziggy and Garnet, and Barry and Maureen, a cousin of Paddy the night porter, who were partying in his room. Of those questioned, they saw and heard nothing strange. But then again, Many of them were drunk and were staying in rooms nowhere near to the scene of the crime in the hours before, during or after the murder. To get a better picture of the hotel, police interviewed staff from past and present, including Gunhilde, the housekeeper who was away that weekend. Bob the chef, who was asleep during those crucial hours. Osman the manager, who was sick in bed with a cold from 5pm until 1pm the next day. And Rosemary the chambermaid, who Cathy, who later found the body, had taken over from. Detectives also interviewed the last staff to see Emmy alive that night, as their sightings were crucial. Patricia, a chambermaid who had been at the hotel for seven weeks, would state, When I came off work, I didn't do much as I had no plans. I popped out at about 10.30pm to meet a friend at a pub, and I arrived back at 10.45pm. I talked to Paul and Linda, 
and I think Mrs. Werner was there too, in the hotel lounge. Paul, the 16-year-old day porter, would state, It was the beginning of August when Mrs. Werner came to the hotel. It was whilst there that I first had anything to do with her. She had left a box of tissues in one of the shops in Queensway. Linda asked me to go round to find them. And Linda and I have been friendly with Mrs. Werner ever since. That night, Paul was due to finish his shift at 11pm. But had stayed later, as Paddy the night porter had failed to turn up for his shift, having been drinking with his cousin. Linda, as one of the longest-serving staff, was the receptionist at the Queen's Hotel for 14 months. Since Emmy's first visit in May, the two had become close friends and someone who Emmy could trust. So it was not unusual for them to dine out together, to go to the theatre, or as Linda would state, Mrs. Werner asked me to meet with her daughter to discuss her money. She had a sizable amount in her bank, which they would not allow her to access. That night, Linda would escort Emmy to her room, and living in room 51 on the second floor, Linda went to bed shortly afterwards. Despite repeated appeals, Mr. and Mrs. Gibbs were never found. It's likely they were unmarried, and their names were false to disguise the shame of a clandestine affair. An initial suspect was a regular known only as Mr. James, who stayed in room 12 next door to Emmy's. Being on shift that night, Paul saw him enter the hotel at 9.20pm. Being a foot taller and several stone heavier than Emmy, he was unfriendly, unnervingly quiet. He often brought prostitutes back to his room. And three weeks before the murder, Patricia the chambermaid spotted in his suitcase a bondage whip. Given Emmy's injuries, any sexual sadist in the vicinity was suspected. But having been interviewed, Mr. James provided a concrete alibi and was ruled out. This left just one unaccounted person staying at the hotel that night who was yet to be questioned. Paddy the Night Porter With no witnesses to the murder, the police had to rely on the evidence before them. Whoever had murdered Emmy Werner had wanted her body hidden for as long as possible. With the lights turned off, the curtains closed, the door locked, the bedsheets pulled up, and a pillow placed over her face. But was this to effect a faster escape, or simply to hide the horror of what he had done to her?
the evidence suggests that a murder was not premeditated, as her killer had only used items which came to hand within the confines of room 11. So why was this person there, in a locked room, alone with an old sleeping lady? Her autopsy would give the detectives a rough timeline of the attack. Owing to the inconsistent temperature of her room, as the radiators were unbearably hot and the balcony doors left open, her time of death was placed at some time between midnight and 3am. With her fingernails unbroken and no defensive bruises, it was clear that Emmy was attacked while she slept in her bed. It was likely that her killer had no intention of waking her, as his entry was stealthy. Possibly hearing a sound. Maybe a floorboard creak. She stirred. She began to scream. And she was silenced with a hand across her mouth. But by then, it was too late, as his face had already been seen. Perhaps in panic, he straddled her. Rucking up her nightdress, leaving a particle of bitumen on her bedsheet, and crushing her chest with his weight, resulting in fractures to both her left and right ribs. With bruising to her chin and left cheek, Unable to silence her, he had punched this frightened old lady hard in the face. To someone less frail, a fast fist may not have been so violent. But having undergone a lobotomy, the impact had cracked her skull open, fracturing the two boreholes until they met. Hemorrhaging, Emmy bled into her pillow. She was trapped, silenced, and terrified. In her harrowing life, she had endured more pain and suffering than most people could imagine. Only now, her death wouldn't be at the hands of the Nazis, but possibly a man who until a few months ago, she had barely known. As a small woman, of unquestionable strength. We know she fought back, but his attack was sustained. Around her throat, he had manually strangled her until she drifted into semi-consciousness. His hand left bruises as he crushed her larynx, fractured her hyoid bone and caused her tongue to swell. Seizing his moment to silence her and to make his escape. From the sink he grabbed a towel and tightly bound her feet together so she could neither run nor move. And from the wardrobe he snatched her tatty brown cardigan and around her wrists he tied her hands in front of her. But coming too, maybe she was not silent. And beginning to scream, Maybe that is why he did what he did next. 
with fistfuls of the hotel's toilet paper. He forced the wadded paper into her throat, stuffing it so deep that she began to choke. Grabbing her mohair scarf from off the door hook, he gagged her tight so she couldn't spit it out. And knowing that Mrs. Werner, a woman who had survived so much but was about to die for so little, could possibly identify him, he suffocated her with her blood-soaked pillow until she went limp. Lying dead, her face etched in terror for an eternity. Emmy's assailant covered her with the bedsheets. And just as he had crept in via the open doors of the balcony, from there he would vanish. His motive was neither murder, hatred, nor sex. It was as simple as this. A burglary. Having targeted this 68-year-old woman for what he believed was a hundred pounds, he had left with literally nothing. All she had was a few pounds, some old clothes, a box of crackers, and a bottle of perfume. Unsure who he was, and with no fingerprints found, as it's likely he wore gloves, the police felt they had enough evidence to convict their most likely suspect even without an eyewitness. The man who murdered Emmy Werner would have fibres from her bedsheets and scarf on his clothes, particles of black bitumen from her balcony and bedsheet on his shoes, and having smoked a cigarette, perhaps before he fled, he had left the filter tip of a John Player special, along with his Group A saliva. The detectives had a prime suspect since the first day of the investigation. As an employee of the hotel, he had knowledge of the rooms, doors and the locks. He often bragged of stealing from the guests. He knew how to enter the guest rooms undetected. And he had seen a stack of notes inside Emmy's purse. Within days the night porter was arrested. Only that man was not Paddy. The concluding part of the night porter continues next week. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Oh, Canada, a vast, idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the Great White North, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottawa game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favourite podcasts. Oh dear. So there you have it, folks. Oh dear, let me just open some windows bloody quick. Oh my god, this is heat wave, and it's not even a nice heat wave when it's lots of sun. This is muggy, 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 effing, effing, bloody heat wave. Oh my god, hang on. Right. Oh. Oh. Let me let me take off the uh let me take off the little hood off this as well. Woo, there you go. How's that? Is that better? Is that good? I'm just going to go to my bathroom and get a drink. That sounds weird. You'll understand why in a second. Oh, dear Lord. Hang on. Come on. Coming back. Oh, Christ. It is bloody hot. Hot and meaty and sweaty and horrible. Oh, I can't be asked to make a cup of tea because it's too hot for that. Therefore, the coldest place that I have, except underneath the floorboards, is in, is in my shower. Uh, so sometimes what I do is I rush out and get an ice bag and then I put some cold drinks in there and I've gotten a can of old Jamaican ginger beer, extra fiery. Yeah. Oh, it's good. God, it's hot. It's too hot. It's too hot. I'm dying. I don't, I don't do heat. Don't get heat. What's the point to it? It doesn't make any sense. I like wind and rain. I like cold wind, rain, like snow, all that. Yeah, lovely. Because you can do something about it. You can put on extra layers. Heat, you can't do anything about it. It's a pile of shite. Anyway, uh, right. So I hope that's all good. I had to have all the windows and doors shut because unfortunately, normally my neighbours are very nice and the new neighbours are all right. But shh. She's a bit noisy, a bit noisy. She's, she's got a bit of a gob on her. And she spent the last five days grumbling about how she can't get a, a job. And yet she spent the last five days sunbathing, getting pissed and stoned. 
get a job, fuck's sake, get off your ass. Ah, anyway, um, so yeah, I hope you're enjoying uh, this series. It's deliberately different because because you're all smart people. Like, there's a lot of podcasts out there where they just give you the basics and it's just blah, 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 and you can switch off. I like to try and give you something each time that's different. And what what I know is that as we go through time, I've kind of I've kind of half trained you to kind of kind of think ahead already so so when i say things i know that now because i look at you know, we interact on the, kind of the message boards and stuff like that and i see that quite often you'll go well michael says that but hang on that might not mean that that might be a red herring so i need to think so uh, so i'm always constantly having to think of new ideas to keep you entertained and this one is deliberate i'm having a lot of fun with this one because especially with episode one and partially with episode two it looks like i'm telling you nothing but I'm not. I'm actually telling you a hell of a lot of stuff. But it's because these are very different episodes. Episode one is different to episode two, and episode three. I've hinted at what episode three is is going to be about, but it's not what you think it's going to be about. So we're having fun. Oh, but it's very good. But especially because we had the episode earlier at the start of the year with uh, based in the hotel room, where the the lady who worked in the hotel was tacked in her bed by a homeless man. So I have to make this series different to that one of which it is it's a very different different series uh so yeah core cool, lummy um uh, a thank you to my new patreon supporters see i remembered to do it this week last week i forgot which is why i had to kind of uh edit it in afterwards uh a new thank you new thank you i'm so tired i, oh, I can't talk because it's so hot a big thank you to my new patreon supporters who are susan adams sharon gorman quinlan e EJ and Jess King. I got confused because there was a Jessica King last week and then there was a Jess King this week. And I was like, they can't, what, they can't, what can't be the, the same person. And then I found out, no, it's just that they, uh, they, they became patron subscribers within the same time frame. And I got confused because I'm, I'm a man and I have a tiny brain. Uh, there you go. I've said that. Uh, a thank you also just came in today to Darren DeRosa. Thank you for your donation via the supporter link. Uh, yes, I will. I will. Uh, I will be spending that on a pump out uh, on my boat. All of the all of the the waste, what we like to call uh, black water. Uh, basically, it means poo and wee is held in a tank, which is fine over winter. It gets a lot of condensation in it, but uh, that's all right. But in summer, when the boat heats up, the poo tank heats up as well, and it can be a bit whiffy, which is why you have to put special chemicals in there. There you go. You've learned something new about boat life. Oh, exciting. Right. Uh, have I said welcome to Extra Mile? I don't think I have. Oh, welcome to Extra Mile. If you're new to this, this is it. It's unscripted. It's waffle. People like it. Sometimes I make a cup of tea, but it's too hot to make a cup of tea today. I've got some coleslaw in the bag that I'm looking forward to having later on. I had some ice cream today. It was at one of those boxes with three uh, ice lollies in there, like like the fake Magnums, not the real Magnums, but the fake Morrison star ones. I ate all three because they were going to go melty anyway so that was my treat but it's so bloody hot i've probably sweated it off already but so there we go um let's dive into some stuff um so quiz questions we'll do the answers in a bit uh don't forget i may balls up some of these very shortly especially given the fact that it's too hot and i will, I will probably balls everything up now so question one emmy stayed in room 11 but which room had she previously stayed in? I almost gave the answer then. 
so I'm really tired. So I woke up really early and then I, I rescued a, a, a muntjac deer which had fallen in the water and was being attacked by a swan. And I was just wearing my pants. There you go. That's a little image for you to enjoy for the day. Uh, question number two. Uh, what was placed by Paul into the lock of the balcony doors to keep it shut? Question number three. Who headed up the police investigation? It's a gentleman whose name I recognise. I think... Oh, yeah, no, that's why. He was involved in the um, uh, the airman one. Of course, because it's just around the corner and it's the same era as well. Uh, question number four. How much money was it said that Emmy had in her purse? Question number five. Who was staying in room 12... This is what made everything difficult for me because when I was going through the police files, I had to work out who was in what room. And sometimes people can't remember what room they were in, so it made it really difficult. Question number six. What was found in... Oh, that gives away the answer. Um, question number six. What was found in the gentleman in room 12's case? <laughs> there, I got around that one just about. Uh, question number seven. What meal uh, did Emmy eat? Just after the theatre? Mmm, yummy. Belly rub rub. Question number eight. What brand of cigarettes was found in the room? Dirty, dirty cigarettes. Dirty, uh, dirty smokers. Question number nine. What blood group was on that cigarette filter tip? I don't think I'd go back to cigarettes now. Have, as, having smoked for years since I was a kid and then quit, I think I quit. Must be about 13, 14 years ago. I'd never go back now. Dirty habit. Uh, question number 10. What weapon uh, did her killer bring with him? There you go. So let's dive into a couple of things now that are in the case. I, as mentioned last week, I want to be really cautious because I haven't written part three yet. I've pieced out all the pieces that I want. Oh, burpees. I've pieced out everything, uh, all the all the evidence that I want, everything that I want to discuss. I know the structure of the next week's episode, but sometimes things go, things jump in, things jump out. Like in this episode, some some things that were meant to be in part one, uh, I actually I actually re-edited before you listened to last week's episode. I actually re-edited it before it went out because there was. I thought there was too much in there, so I actually stripped out a lot of stuff, and I think I made it. I made it a much better episode. So some of the stuff that you heard that you didn't hear last week is in this week's episode, and some of the stuff that's meant to be in this week's episode, I've moved to next week's episode, and some of the stuff that's in next week's episode might not make it into the episode at all, which is why you need to listen to Walk with Me because then you'll hear all the stuff that didn't make it into any episode. Core dear, right? Um, as mentioned, uh, Emmy's room. Room. Uh, it's four terraces together. It was first floor. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you can look at the photos, the pictures on there. It consists of, I think it's 86 to 92 uh, Inverness Terrace. Hers was on the far left. The reception was on the far right. Uh, when you look at it, there's no real way to get up there unless you know how to shimmy up a column. It's it's a real nightmare. There's uh, parking outside, a car was in the way, basements in the way. So it's hard to kind of get in from the street level. Uh, when the police went in, they said, you know, it, it, there was some detritus on the floor, but I've got the crime scene photos. And when I looked at them, 
It was fine. Do you know, it was no worse than most of us leave a ho- an average hotel room. Do you know, when we're in a hotel room, we don't exactly hang stuff up. I mean, do you know, we spread things all over the place. Like me, I was in a hotel recently. As I did, I unpacked all of my electrical equipment and plugged it into the socket. Why? Because I don't have mains electricity on a boat. Uh, so that's what I do. Uh, and I don't, I don't own clothes that need to be hung up. I don't, what's the point? What's the point? I don't own an iron. You can't really run an iron on a boat. So uh, hence... When you see people on boats, they either, like me, have shaved heads or they have dreadlocks because it's easier to look after. Um, or they have clothes, which like jeans and a T-shirt, things like that don't need to be ironed. Uh, I had a friend once and she was like, oh, I'm going to move on to a boat. And I had to explain to her that you can't run an iron. You can't. You definitely can't run a hairdryer. Uh, and, and she's one of these ladies who likes her hair done and her makeup done and her dress is all pretty. And I was just like, you're not going to last just give up just stay on board uh, stay in a house uh what else was there what else was there uh, as mentioned when kathy the uh chambermaid came in she just thought the room looked a little bit untidy she didn't think anyone was in the bed she didn't think anyone was in the room at all um the ambulance driver was michael blight he arrived at 1 10 p.m having received a call from the st john's wood station just around the corner it took them six minutes to arrive when he got there the hotel staff were mostly outside uh, i believe it was oswald the manager who guided him in uh, when he got there he noticed that emmy had no pulse i.e no signs of life and he uh, notified his colleague to call the, uh, the police uh, and they remained at the scene until the police arrived to cordon it off and the body was left in situ. Uh, as mentioned, uh, Emmy's hands were tied with a brown cardigan. You can kind of see that with, with her killer, he's not, he hasn't turned up with things in his bag. Like, like when you look at someone like Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy had kind of um, things in his, he had like his little murder bag in his boot, which had his ropes and he had disguises, you know, all the premeditation was there, but everything that this person has used is what was close to hand, and most of it is not particularly good, like tying her hands with a brown cardigan, it's kind of a woolen cardigan that's going to come loose, so he had to kind of uh, tie it a couple of times Uh, as mentioned, he smothered her with a pillow um there what else was there uh there's a little bit of um whether i'll go into this next week i don't know this is one of the things that i took out um when bob the chef turned upstairs he was still unsure whether she was alive or dead he was a little bit shocked uh he removed the pillow from over her face uh which is why it wasn't there she wasn't in the position that she was in because she'd already been moved by kathy because kathy thought that she was still alive uh and he actually untied the cardigan from her hands uh because he he wanted to revive her when the police turned up he was honest about it he said i did that i don't know why i did that i thought she was i well he he kind of hoped that she was still alive obviously you've been in the job for two weeks as a chef you don't expect to find a someone dead in a hotel room but you also don't expect to see someone tied up and potentially tortured in her bed so uh as mentioned toilet paper was crammed into her mouth uh, and the scarf, they keep saying cloth in the evidence, but it was actually the, her mohair scarf that she was wearing that night, which is why I mentioned it a couple of times previously. Well done to those who spotted it. Uh, what else is there? Autopsy. Autopsy conducted by Dr. David Rowan, the pathologist of Charing Cross Hospital. That was conducted at 8.45 a.m. the very next day. at um, uh, It was actually at Westminster Mortuary uh, alongside... Uh, Detective Inspector Donald Organ, uh, 
uh, and the guy who was heading up the investigation, whose name I won't mention because that's one of the questions. Well done, me. Um, she was still wearing her nylon uh, nightdress. Um, As mentioned, she was only a little lady, four and a half stone in weight. uh, Sorry, seven and a half stone in weight, four foot eleven in height. So she's she's a foot shorter than myself. Uh, As mentioned earlier on, she had a natural curvature of the spine, but they said she had a good, healthy heart. Um, we won't go into all the details but given the pallor of her skin they they kind of worked out the temperature of the room and the ambient temperature outside which is why they were a little bit vague about the exact timings normally they could be a little bit more specific on timings but because the inside of the room was hot and the outside of the room uh was cool but then heating up um it kind of made it difficult for them to kind of be able to pin down exactly uh, when she had died uh, but it, they got it between midnight and uh, 3 a.m they said it was rough they they reckon it was kind of at the midpoint probably about half past one-ish but that was kind of hedging their bets to save midnight to 3 a.m as mentioned her nails are in good condition there was no signs of a struggle no defensive wounds there was a bruise to the top of one of top of her left hand uh, but that was believed to be old um she had two small oval bruises to the left-hand side of her chin, which was believed uh, her attacker had punched her. Um, bruising to the top of her left shoulder, upper breastbone, and left-hand uh, collarbone. Uh, that may have been her attacker pressing down on her, whether with, with his hands uh, or he was kneeling on her, which is why they were able to find one of the black particles from his shoe uh, on the bed. Uh, she had hemorrhaging to the upper part of her face um, uh, her mouth uh, examination of her mouth showed blood stains uh, of the paper tissues within so when she was hit um, that caused hemorrhaging there but also hemorrhaging inside uh, because her dental palate had shifted when she was strangled as well kind of her, her uh, her tongue had swollen as well. When you look at the crime scene photos, there's a, considering she was hit once or possibly, who knows, maybe a couple of times, there's a hell of a lot of blood there. The blood patch next to her head is about the same size as her head. So it's likely that she was probably lying on her side uh, on her left uh, facing the wall. Uh, and then she was moved by either Kathy or Bob or both. Um as mentioned, there are quite a few strips of uh, toilet paper in her throat. There were a couple of strips, a couple of inches long, that was, uh, remained inside her throat. Uh, it was believed that they may have been forced in. Um, it was quite a prolonged attack on her. As mentioned, she'd been manually strangled. So at some point, he had used his hand. The pathologist had looked and said it was a gripping pressure mark across the back of the neck, produced by a hand rather than a ligature. Uh, which is interesting given the fact that the, the scarf was there and he used the scarf to kind of gag her, but he didn't use the scarf to strangle her. So it's a, uh, an interesting thing. Um, her larynx, i.e. her voice box, was uh, bruised. Her, her hyoid bone was fractured. Her tongue was swollen. Uh, and when they checked, her airways were not congested with food or any other obstruction. So they knew definitely uh, that it was the... Uh, strangulation and the suffocation that had actually caused her death she had fractures upon the upper third of her sternum between the second and third ribs fractures to ribs 
two to eight on the left hand side fractures of room of ribs one to eight on the right hand side with with heavy bruising uh suggesting she'd either been built beaten but most likely she'd been knelt on which is pretty cool considering the fact that she's you know she's only little and she's incredibly light and she's incredibly old it's like kind of a lot of pressure and to put on such a a kind of a weak frame Do you know she's she's old she can barely get up the stairs by herself he could probably held it held her down just using a hand um as mentioned she had a, a, a large skull fracture which caused a massive hemorrhage um so when she had a lobotomy many years ago as mentioned in the previous episode which is why we go not only go into her mental history but also uh the operations that she had uh because she had a lobotomy they obviously they drill boreholes in the temples uh to kind of release the pressure inside the head um but as he had punched her obviously because her because her bones are weaker uh, as he punched her that caused a fracture literally going from so it'd be from the left hand side of her face right across to the right hand side so her, her skull had fractured open uh, which led to the excessive bruising um uh as mentioned there were there were no her, her nightdress had been kind of rocked up slightly around her midriff uh, but this was believed that was when he had kind of climbed onto the bed to pin her down to the bed uh, there were no visible signs of any sexual assault um also don't forget the room is incredibly hot she, she may have pulled up her kind of uh, her nightdress slightly to cool herself down um we still don't know why the room was incredibly hot uh, maybe it was just the uh, thermostat was slightly bollocked up that night but who knows uh, what else have we got what else have we got that's it can't tell that as mentioned uh the door lock on the room was examined by victor grist the locksmith he said the lock was a yale night watch um he said there were no signs of force uh although he did state there was a possible possibility it was possible to affect an entry by inserting something between the door and the door frame in line with the lock um i did that on a mate's door years ago when he was out and it, I, I tried it i didn't know whether it'd work um and he basically got a credit card and just went and i opened the door within seconds and i was like wow didn't realize you could actually do that but i, I did um as mentioned there were black particles found in the room from the bitumen uh bitumen was used to um waterproof the balcony uh i almost said something i shouldn't have then this is really difficult for me because i see i know i know what you don't know and i'm deliberately trying to not tell you what i know but uh gotta be careful gotta be careful uh no let's not do that uh let's not do that bit as mentioned uh obviously this is an era before dna uh so um even though they had details on it, they had no fingerprints that they could believe from the suspect because let's not forget this is a high traffic area and even though i'm sure the cleaners did a nice job they wouldn't have cleaned every single surface it would you know especially given the fact that it was staffed by kids the likelihood is they probably did a botch up i was just in a hotel this weekend and although i walked in and it looked nice when I, when i looked down the side there was like three used covid masks sitting at the side and i was just like uh, do you know there's shit underneath the bed it was fine <laughs> but you just expect a little bit better anyway um so yeah an era before dna um no fingerprints uh footmarks but they couldn't tell the size of the footprints because 
a lot of people have been in the room. Don't forget that, that when when people walk in, they don't instantly think, oh, it's a crime scene. I need to... What they would have done is walked in and gone, oh, my God, an old lady who we like is, you know, not moving. Is there a problem with her? Do I need to help her? Do we need to call an ambulance? Call the ambulance. The ambulance come in there, even though they're trained to kind of consciously think this is a, this could be a crime scene. Their job and the police's job, uh, as we learned from John and Sally last week, uh, when their job when they turn up at a crime scene, their first job is preservation of life to to do what they can to make sure that this person lives. And it's only when they're determined determined as dead that you go right. Crime scene. Uh, so yeah, a cigarette butt was found uh, with a um, a sal- sal- saliva type. We'll go into this a little bit more next week. Uh, it was type A, but let's not forget this is an era where you couldn't really pin stuff down. You could basically point it out, point, nail it down to type A secreta, type A non secreta, type O secreta, type O non secreta. Um, and I think in one of the earlier episodes we had where, oh, this was the hotel one as well. Um, some of these have crossover points and it can be very confusing. I mean, we don't have that now, but back then we did. Uh, let's not do that one. Mr. and Mrs. Gibbs, uh, even just a few years ago, so like three years ago, the, the, there was um, one of the relatives of Emmy Werner's, uh, the, uh, they'd put out another appeal uh to find this Mr. and Mrs. Gibbs, but you know, it's it, it's technically it'll be fifty years on in a couple of months' time, and they still don't know who these people are. So the likelihood is, they gave a false name. They probably weren't a married couple. Don't forget, this is nothing sinister. This is in an era where people still had that old-fashioned mindset that you know, you if you were unmarried, you couldn't book into a hotel because it was scandalous. Oh my God, unmarried people in a hotel room, whoopee fucking do. So people were changing their names, which which led to problems like this. So actually, it was society that was the problem, not this couple. So uh, um, if society weren't a bunch of moralistic bigots, Mr. and Mrs. Gibbs or whoever they were would have given their proper ID and if they would have heard something, we probably would have known about it. But we haven't and they've never come forward. Uh, what else we got? Mm, can't do that question because that's going to be, yeah. Okay, well, I've done all the details I can and some of them I can't because because they're questions for, for the quiz questions. So let's dive in. Let's do the quiz questions. Let me have a slurp of, oh, it's still cold. Old Jamaican ginger beer, extra fiery. Oh, that's nice. Right. Oh, dear. Right, quiz questions. Let's get ready. Question number one. Emmy stayed in room 11, but which room had she previously stayed in? Was room 17, which was next to Oswald, um, the manager. Oswald. Oswald. Osmond. I had to rewrite this episode because I realised I kept calling him Oswald and his name is actually Osmond. Even though, as you can tell, I've deliberately uh, used people's nicknames where available and I haven't included people's surnames uh, for various reasons, which you'll find out next week. Next week is an interesting episode. Uh, Question number two. What was placed by Paul into the lock of the balcony doors to keep it shut? It was a 5p piece. 
burps again. Question number three. Who headed up the investigation? It was Detective Chief Inspector John Candlish. Yeah, he was he was the one uh, with the uh, the airman, the one that we did about two episodes ago. Uh, question number four. How much money was it said Emmy had in her purse? £100, which is uh, today would be about £1,500. So, yeah, enough to enough for her to stay at a hotel for four days to come into town to go to the theater to have some meals do some shopping yeah makes sense although as we know my gran used to walk around the street this used to scare us a hell of a lot and um, we with an amazing bank like even though we live hundreds of miles away the bank would call us up and go okay your gran's just come in she's just taken out 500 pounds like this is People in their bank, like bank manager, calling up and saying, I'm worried for you, Gran. And they're like, she's taken out £500 and there's nothing we can do about it. And we've seen her walking down the street with her purse open, counting our money. And it's like she lives in a town that's full of effing crack addicts. Oh, but there's nothing you could do. But thank God for good, decent people like the people who worked in our bank. Um, it's £100. So, so a lot of money that she was carrying. Um, question number five. Who was staying in room 12? It was Mr. James, the kinky sex pervert. We've all been there and we've all been there. Question number six. What was found in Mr. James's suitcase? It was a bondage whip. Nice. <laughs> we all carry a bondage whip into the hotel room. Come on, that's just standard, isn't it? It's like pants, socks, bondage whip. Uh, question number seven. What meal did Emmy have after the theatre? Sausage sandwiches. Ooh, nice. Can't beat a sausage sandwich. Oh, tonight I've got leeks. Why did I do this to myself? Why didn't I just buy sausage sandwiches? Mm. Question number eight. What brand of cigarette was found in the room? It was a John Player special. A nice thick tarry cigarette. Yuck, he used to smoke those years ago. And in the morning you wake up and you're like... Uh, question number nine. What blood group was found on the uh, cigarette filter tip? It was group A. Group A secreter, actually. Uh, question number ten. What weapon did her killer bring with him? Nothing. He didn't bring anything with him. Uh, which says a lot about the case. Good. So that's that. Core Uh So I'm going to go and charge up my power. Uh, I'm going to take a little walk in the park, I think. Go and see some more roe deer. And then I think I might move my boat tomorrow morning. So I'm not near the crazy woman. She's a little bit crazy. Uh, so I'm going to do that really early in the morning. Uh, and that's good. That's all good. Um, don't forget, if you are free, uh, I think it might be this weekend when this episode goes out. We've got the meet and greet in London with Mike from Dark Poutine. Uh, go to the uh, the show notes underneath. You'll see where that is. Uh, myself, Paul and Adam are doing our live show, uh, How to Plan the Perfect Murder, and then totally balls it up. In London again, that's on the 11th of August. If you're free, come along. It's a Thursday. Uh, we aim to be finished by kind of about half ten-ish. Uh, 10 half 10 so even if you've got to travel it's it's it, you know we've kind of tried to make it as easy as possible uh if you can make it that would be lovely we'd love to see you anyway i think that's me done Whew. 
Have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe. Stay cool, because it's a bloody meaty one out there. Uh, Be good. Uh, Don't get murdered. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you for supporting the show, by the way. Uh, Have yourself a good week. Stay safe and be good. I've said that. Okay. Bye-bye this time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.